Once again, good morning to you. Welcome. Very glad that you're here today. Um, as most of you are aware, our uh, church body has been through uh, a series of storms that are quite significant in lasting not only the last few weeks, but also for months. And I just want to thank each of you that has prayed for our body, that has been prompted by the Spirit to do so or to gather in groups to do so. Thank you for your prayers for our fellowship. Thank you for your prayers for Karen, for myself. Thank you so especially for prayers for my family. And I just ask that you would continue to do that, just to continue to intercede, uh, beseeching the Lord for His grace and His goodness for all of us. The Bible says that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much, and they do, and he knows how to make much of prayer. And I just want to say thank you so much for your part in all of that in recent week and weeks and months. Let's stand together now and let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 11. On Sunday morning, we've been studying the book of Matthew, or sections out of it. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave and get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage this morning for your ease. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. The Lord wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible, and uh, He will bless you as you... Uh, draw near to him through his word. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, and this is John the Baptist, the message they delivered by John the Baptist to Jesus was, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel praise preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word that will indeed outlive all of the heavens and all of the earth. Every jot and every tittle will have the final say in human history and the final say concerning each of our lives. We thank you for the greatness of your promises and the revelation and the truth that is found in your word. And Lord, as Christians, we thank you this morning for the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice, that allows us to be on the right side of all of those promises and all of that truth. We pray for men and women that stand before you right now, men and women that you love dearly, who have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And we pray that today would be the day that they would hear your voice, realize what you have done for them in your Son and what you want them to do with your gift of everlasting life and bring them into your kingdom, Lord. We know you work very hard toward that in each life, and that's what we pray that you would do once again this morning. We pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us a supernatural ability to hear your word and to understand your word. We pray, Lord, that you would make your voice louder than all of the voices of life, all of the voices of our circumstances, all of the voices that are in our emotions, all the voices that are in our heads. And we pray that you would give us the capacity to hear your word from your throne this morning. And we ask for it, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In Matthew chapter 11, at this point in Jesus' public ministry, he has become very, very widely known for both his teaching and also for his miracles. 
He has within the northern part of Israel cleansed lepers without number. He has restored sight to the blind. He has restored hearing to the deaf. He has raised people from the dead. And as you might expect, that when word of that began to spread out into all of directions, people began to give consideration to it and wonder about it. What Jesus did in just a single day in his public ministry would have been something that the greatest prophets in the Old Testament would have been happy to have marked that the entirety of their public ministry. There was never and never has been in human history the kind of ministry that Jesus brought in ministering to the needs of people. And sometimes we read about it and we become so familiar with it and to realize that in all of the law and the prophets, in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was nothing even remotely like him on the scene. Nothing even remotely on the level of what God was doing through him. And it had the attention of the entire land of Israel. And the report went out in all directions. And among those that heard these reports were the disciples of John the Baptist. And they then brought the reports of what Jesus was doing and accomplishing to John the Baptist, who at the time was in a thoroughly miserable circumstance. For at that moment, John sat languishing in a prison in a miserable, miserable condition for any human being. But you put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes, and here he was, a man's man to be sure, and an outdoorsman. I guess the closest thing you could have would be like this mega spiritual um, hunter, fisherman. He, his whole backyard, his front yard, his whole life was the Judean wilderness. And when you take a trip, if you're able to, to Israel and you go to the Jordan River and you see the Judean wilderness, the harshness of the territory, what is demanded of a person to live there, to minister there, it's an amazing thing to see. And this was his territory. This is where he lived, outdoors, breathing fresh air, breathing free air as he preached the gospel to men and women and the need for them to repent of their sins and to prepare their hearts for the coming of Messiah. And now here is this man cooped up now in this small prison. And as if it couldn't be any worse, it was worse. Because John the Baptist was not only in prison, but he was in prison for doing what was right on behalf of God. And faithfully speaking the word of God, not only to the common man, and to the multitude, and then having a different message before power brokers and famous people and all. No, when he was brought before Herod, who had abandoned his wife, Herod was the king of Israel at that time, and he had abandoned his wife, and he had taken his brother's wife, Herodias, to himself in an adulterous relationship. And somehow John the Baptist is brought into all of this in some series of circumstances in which he finds it necessary to then confront Herod with, uh, with his adultery here. And, and as he confronts him with, with his adultery and the sin of his adultery, of course, this didn't go over well. And Herod wanted to put him to death immediately, but he feared the power that John had among the common people and his popularity. And so he kept him in prison, though ultimately, with Her Herodias' uh, request, he would ultimately behead John the Baptist and put him to death. And all of this has been John's condition now for many, many months. And as he remains in this miserable condition, he actually begins to doubt in his mind whether Jesus is the promised Messiah. You think about that. We're talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. One of the toughest guys spiritually in all of the Bible. The greatest of all of the prophets under the Old Covenant. And as he sits in this Roman prison, 
he begins to have doubts concerning whether Jesus truly was the promised Messiah. And in verse 6, we're told that he was even offended because of Jesus. And the Greek word there is scandalizo, which means to put a stumbling block in the way of a person. And John the Baptist is being tripped up. He's being stumbled by something. And what he's being stumbled by is how Jesus is handling his situation and how Jesus is handling his incarceration, his circumstance. And the idea of what he's communicating here is that if Jesus truly is the promised Messiah, if he really is the Savior of the world, then how in the world can he leave me in this miserable condition? Why doesn't he rise up and overthrow the Roman occupation and then set up the promised kingdom of God, secure my release? What's taking him so long? Maybe he isn't the Messiah after all. And how the devil loves to attack our faith when he finds us in a difficult circumstance. There are many reasons to hate the devil. There are many reasons to hate the devil. But one of them is... The fact that he never plays fair, he never plays fair. You take the dirtiest fighter you've ever fought in life, and he is dirtier still, by far, only in the spiritual realm, and attacking us. And he never looks at a single one of our lives and says, ooh, they're in a tough spot. That must be hard for them. That must really be a pinch for them. That must really be being difficult for their faith and their relationship with God. I think I'll just back off from them and give them some space. Hate to see a Christian stumbled. He never does that. When he finds us in that kind of a place, he piles on in all of his fury. Now this doubt of, this doubt of John's is remarkable. In the light of John's personal experience with Jesus, in light of his personal revelation that he has received from God Almighty in his life, and what he knew to be true about Jesus firsthand. Perhaps you remember when Mary, in that miracle of Jesus' immaculate conception, the virgin conception in Mary's womb, that months earlier, Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, ultimately, Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins, and they had been separated. Each of their, each of their conceptions were a miracle in their own way. And finally, Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, and as she walks into the room, and Elizabeth hears the voice of the mother of the Son of God, the one that Jesus, the, the Father has chosen to bring the Savior into the world. The Bible says that she was Elizabeth baptized with the Holy Spirit and John the Baptist within the womb of Mary, uh, in the womb of Elizabeth, leaped inside. John had baptized Jesus at the Jordan River in his adult life to begin Jesus' public ministry. And when Jesus comes to be water baptized, John the Baptist, knowing who he was, he protested. He said, who am I to baptize you? You ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus said, let it be so for now. And he understood who Jesus was. And then at that very baptism, John the Baptist, hearing the attesting of the Father to the Son, Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. John saw all of this. John understood all of this. John heard all of this. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene and began his public ministry, John the Baptist was quick to then turn his own disciples or followers away from turning him, following him, to then turn to follow after Jesus. And he spoke to them as Jesus was making his way from one place to another. Jesus is there, John is there with his disciples, and he said to the disciples, Behold the Lamb, his disciples, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The idea is, gentlemen, I have taken you as far as I can take you in a relationship and an understanding with God. This is the one that takes everyone where we need to go in that. And he recognized Jesus as the Messiah. 
And later on in his own ministry, he declared concerning himself in contrast to Jesus, he said, I must decrease and he must increase. This is John's history with God. These weren't things that he just kind of had an emotional moment and he, he thought these things and then he said these things. This was his history with God. And you would think that a man like that would never, ever, ever in their life, they may doubt many things in life, but that they would never doubt till the day they died that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet he does. And yet he does. And it's not just anyone who does. It's John the Baptist who does. And it speaks to us very powerfully of how difficulty in our circumstances, especially when trials begin to become very deep and very long in their duration, can work against our faith in God. And John the Baptist's problem was with what I would call unmet expectations. God was not doing things the way that he thought should have been done. And it stumbled him. God was not living up to John's expectations. Maybe you felt that in your life and in your Christian life at one time or another, maybe even today. And it is that trial that God is not living up to my expectations that has the potential to shake the faith of even the strongest of Christians. When God does not do what we are expecting him to do in our particular circumstance. Sometimes it happens in a marriage where a Christian is in a very, very difficult marriage. And the marriage is so one-sided, so awfully, so terribly, unspeakably one-sided. The change doesn't come in the other person. And that's a long, long, hard trial that can ultimately lead to a crisis in faith. Sometimes it can be in a challenging work situation where everything that we want to do is to run from the place that God has called us to serve him and be a witness to him in that circumstance. And it gets harder and it gets darker and the circumstances become so difficult that the idea is that, I, that, it, that it becomes one in which I, w I want to escape it at all costs. And, it, and the trial goes on for so long and it's so deep that it creates a crisis of faith. Sometimes it happens with physical illness, being diagnosed with something. And then you head into something, whether it might be your own life or someone else's life that you love, where... It brings a trial into your life that is long and is hard. I remember a woman many years ago, and she's not the first or the last that I remember in this way, but for whatever reason, for where I was in life at that point in time and where she was in life, God just opened it up to me and let me see some things and think about some things that I wouldn't have otherwise maybe looked at that way. Single mom. Single mom. It's about as tough as it gets. One boy. Raises him to about 17 years old. And he gets diagnosed with cancer. Very aggressive. And she loses him rapidly. And that sent her into a crisis of faith that I can still see and feel to this day, probably 20 years later. Sometimes these kind of things come into our life when you make a stand and you do the right thing in God's eyes and you end up isolated and shunned as a result of it. That's John's portion. 
in this passage. Or in ministry where God calls us to do something and we obey it and it translates into indescribable hardship and there's very little fruit to show for it. And I'll tell you, there's not a missionary in the world that doesn't experience that every single day in their service to the Lord. And it can be a deep crisis of faith. And I think it's very important to realize that not every crisis in faith occurs because of a lack of faith. Probably most crises of faith occur because of lack of faith within our lives, but not all of them. And this is one, is one of those. I think that very often we experience and can experience a crisis of faith precisely because we do know God. And precisely because we do have faith in God. The interesting to know, thing to notice about John the Baptist is he isn't doubting the power of Jesus. Not for a moment. That's not his crisis. He's hearing all of these reports of the deaf hearing and the blind being able to see and people being cured of all kinds of diseases, the dead even being raised. He's hearing about the power of Jesus from all directions. That's not what he doubts. What he doubts is the wisdom of Jesus. What he doubts is the way of Jesus in his life. And to me, John's problem isn't a crisis of faith in the sense that he doubts the Lord's ability. His struggle is with what he knows God could do in a second, effortlessly, in a moment. And yet he doesn't. And yet he doesn't. And that's one of the most powerful trials of faith that we'll ever face. Here we are in this stinking prison cell in the ancient Roman Empire. And Jesus could deliver me from this as easily as he restored sight to the blind of the people that I'm hearing about. And yet he doesn't do it. That's John's crisis. And maybe that's one or two of us here this morning. Like John, you have a very long history with God. You've seen the miracles. You've experienced miracles in your life. And you've walked with God and you've served God through thick and thin. And yet this trial you're in now, this circumstance, it's an offense to you. It's a stumbling block to you. It has you doubting. And the biggest thing that you struggle with is not what God can or cannot do. That's not the issue for you. But rather with what you know he could do in a moment. And yet he isn't. And like John the Baptist, your faith is in crisis. Under the weight of it. It happens. It happens. And that's why the passage is in the Bible. I want you to notice what John did with his doubts. And what he did with his doubts is recorded for us in verse 3. And that is he brought them to Jesus. John's disciples were sent by John to deliver a message to Jesus. And the message was, our, verse 3, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And they delivered that message verbatim just as John had declared, wanted them to, and it, it commissioned them to do that. And the translation is basically, are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for someone else? Wow. This isn't John the Baptist internalizing his doubts anymore. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist hitting a very real place in his Christian life and ministry, so to speak, that he is willing to speak his doubt openly and verbally and have them potentially affect his disciples. 
Now, there are certain questions that we face in our lives as Christians concerning the wise of God's ways that can only be answered by God. There are certain answers to the questions that we face in our Christian life and in our trials that only God knows the answer to. That we will never ever get an answer on the horizontal relationships within our life. Where I can talk to one person or a thousand people that are the most spiritual Christians in the whole wide world and all thousand of them put together will not be able to shed even the slightest light upon what God is thinking about behind my circumstance. There are certain things that happen in our life for which man has nothing to say that is of help to us. We must take the situation to God, to the vertical relationship within our life, because he's the only one who can speak for himself, and he's the only one who knows what we need to hear from him at that moment. When John takes this question and has it sent to Jesus, I think that it teaches us that we should never be afraid to bring any honest question to the Lord in our lives. Not to stuff them, not to internalize them. There's a better thing when we hit a crisis of faith like this to bring all of it to the Lord and to realize that he doesn't mind. God never minds an honest question. He knows it's tough here. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we are going against the stream of everything physically, morally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, the whole force of all of fallen creation around us. He knows how hard our lives are. And he doesn't mind when we bring the greatness of our need and our questions to him. In the Psalms, David spoke of pouring out his heart before the Lord and encouraged us to do the same. It's a good verse to write down if you're a note taker. Psalm 62, verse 8, that declares, Trust in him at all times, you people. And then here it is. Pour out your heart before him, that is, before God. God is a refuge for us. Selah. And when the idea of the pouring out your heart in the Hebrew language, the language of the Old Testament, means literally to spill. And when we spill something, we spill a glass, everything is poured out of the glass. There's nothing that in, within our heart that we should be afraid to bring to God in our relationship with him. And you look at David all the way through the Psalms and, and the Psalms that came out of his life and out of his service to the Lord where he talked to God about anything and everything in, that he was facing. And you know what's interesting, and it's good to put it maybe in the margin of your Bible or in your bulletin as you're taking notes, to write next to this passage, Psalm 13. Because in Psalm 13, David is experiencing the very same confusion in his life and his ministry that John the Baptist was. Let me read six verses from that psalm to you. He cries out to the Lord, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It isn't bad enough that the trial is hard, but now I don't feel the intimacy that I've known with you. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. God, I'm going to die in this. Unless my enemies say I have prevailed against him, and lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. And then he went on to write, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully 
with me. Jesus' response to John's doubt is interesting in verses 4 through 6. And what he did, and Luke's gospel tells us a little more clearly about it, with a little more elaboration. They come with the question, are you the Messiah or are we looking for somebody else? And Jesus then turned from them and turned to the crowd and he just began to heal people. And he began to raise people from the dead. And he preached the gospel to the poor. And he cleansed the lepers. And it wasn't like he said, listen, would somebody get me a couple of lepers and some poor people? That's, they were like a sea out in front of him. That's who was coming to Jesus at this time. And so he walks in and he begins to perform all of these miracles that were going on in meeting all of the needs of the people that were in front of him. And then having done that for some period of time, we're not told for how long, he then turned back to John's disciples and he said to them, go and tell John the things which you see and you hear. Go back to my friend John and tell him the things that you have seen and tell him the things that you have heard. And in verse 5 when Jesus declares the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them, he is quoting from the Old Testament passages that spoke of the coming of Messiah. He is quoting Old Testament scripture from Isaiah chapter 29 and 35 and 61. In other words, Jesus is bringing John back to the Bible as a basis for John's faith in him as the Messiah. And he's communicating to John, in essence, John, I may not be meeting your expectations at the moment, but I want you to know that I am fully and wonderfully meeting the expectations of the prophetic scriptures spoken of concerning the promised Messiah. And John, I tell you lovingly, but I also tell you firmly that I am the Messiah, not based upon the difficulty or the ease of your current circumstance, but based upon the witness of the Scripture. I don't think that was an easy thing for Jesus to say to John. And I don't think it was necessarily an easy thing for John to hear the strong message. But John was in need of it. And Jesus loved John, and he quickly followed the rebuke with an encouragement. Verse 6, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John, blessed is the man or woman who does not stumble or fall away because of how I choose to use your life and what I allow into your life. In other words, the solution is not found in falling away from God and his plan for our lives, but it is found in God's grace and in a fresh surrender to his will, whatever the cost. And apparently it was just what John needed to hear in order to remain faithful, because he did. And John's physical circumstances never got any better for himself. He would remain Herod's prisoner in that prison, and then ultimately Herod would order his beheading. And after the death of John the Baptist, word came to, John, to Jesus, and Jesus, impacted by the news, gathered his disciples together, the sorrow of his own heart, to go off aside, to be alone together as he dealt with that death between himself and the Father. This passage teaches us that times of trial and difficulty and confusion are times to always turn to the Bible with our questions. And Jesus used the Word of God to answer John's doubts. And Jesus brought John back to the prophetic scriptures as a basis for his faith in him as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. And the interesting thing is that in the New Testament, God does the same thing for each and every one of us as Christians. Peter wrote in his second epistle, chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. He said, now, 
For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he spoke about how he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with uh, James and John and Jesus. For we, he received from God the Father glory and honor when such came, when, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which come from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And then he goes on and he says, interestingly, we have also the more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do good to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and until the day star arise in your heart. And the Apostle Peter would ultimately die a martyr's death. He would end up being martyred, crucified upside down, as Jesus said that he would. And he refused to be crucified right side up because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same position as his Savior. And here, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter reveals why it did not shake his faith when ultimately it happened in his life. And he said to those early saints in the first century and to us today, he said, my faith in Jesus as the Messiah is not based upon any experience I've had with him. I was on the mount with him. I saw him transfigured into his glo eternal glory. I heard the Father say concerning him, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. I heard all of the teaching. I saw all of the miracles. I witnessed his death. I witnessed his burial. I witnessed his resurrection. I've seen all of this and more, and yet my faith in him as the Messiah is not based upon any of those things or all of those things put together. My faith in him as the Messiah is based upon the fact that he is the Messiah described and witnessed to and testified to by the Old Testament scriptures. And there is something, and he exhorts us and encourages us to make that the basis for our faith as well. In light of what the world is going to become in the end days for Christians, there's something better than seeing as believing or hearing as believing. And that is a faith that is in Christ that is based upon the Word of God and the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. And that's why Peter then calls upon each of us in this room to make the more sure word of prophecy the foundation for our faith in Christ as well. I think that as Christians, it's important to be reminded of the fact that as wonderful as God's promises are in this world, and they are wonderful, they do not include a promise of immunity from trial in this life or from hardship in this life. One day there's not going to be any more hardship, no more sickness, no more difficulty, no more trial, no more spiritual warfare. It'll be gone forever, infinitely gone forever. We'll never know another nanosecond of it. Imagine what would be lifted off of us in that moment. But that's not now. That's heaven. Sometimes, if you're something like me, I can be tempted to think to myself, you know, I love the Lord. And he knows I do. And I serve the Lord, and he knows I do. And I pray to the Lord, and he knows I do. And I grow in my understanding of him from his word, not to prepare sermons, but in my own relationship with him. And he knows that I do. And somehow in my mind that ought to translate into 
a relatively pleasant and carefree life <laughs> spiritually, certainly a very well-protected spiritual life, until he just slips me one day quietly and simply into heaven. And then some great trial comes into my life and I realize, no, he really is committed to conforming me into the image of Christ until my last breath in this world. He really is interested in preparing us for heaven in this life and that this life for the Christian, what this life is, is a preparation for heaven. I think of some of the passages that speak to hardship in the New Testament. Jesus saying famously, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Paul writing to Timothy in his second epistle and saying, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will have a carefree and an effortless life. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It's a new modern translation, perhaps. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul again writing to the church at Philippi, he said, But what things were gained for me, these things I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And then he says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now when I think about God conforming me into the image of Christ, I tend to think of happy things, like God is going to work on my attitude a little bit while I'm driving, uh, or, you know, these other kind of minor things. And I don't know if I stop and think that God is looking to conform me into the image of Christ all the way so that one day I can face death in the same way that he did. And as I mentioned, how seriously he takes his responsibility as a heavenly father to allow us to be able to even handle those final moments in our life in a way that honors God and knowing that the knowledge that he has done that will bless us forever and ever and ever. Jesus wrote to the church at Smyrna in the book of Revelation, and he said, these things writes the first and the last who was dead and come to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Don't fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you'll have tribulation ten days. And then here Jesus says to them, be faithful unto death. Now that's a Christianity for you. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The hardship of life for the child of God, the sight of heaven. But I'll tell you, underneath all of it is the great promise and comfort of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 11, where the Lord declares to us, his people, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, 
that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be what that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. There's a famous Scottish pastor during the 1800s, and his name was John Ross Macduff. And during the course of his life, he suffered the agonizing loss of his son. And it created a great crisis within his life. And it sent him on what he describes as a years-long search seeking God and searching his word concerning the subject of loss and sorrow in life. And the result was one of the most encouraging books that you can ever read at a time of loss and sorrow for perspective and for comfort. And the book is called The Bow in the Cloud, and it's still in print. And in that book he wrote of such times in life, he wrote, Trust Him, speaking of God. Trust Him when you cannot trace Him. Do not try to penetrate the cloud which he brings over the earth and look through it. Keep your eye fixed on the bow. The mystery is God's. The promise is yours. The mystery is God's. The promise is yours. And there are many times in life when God leaves us without an explanation for his ways. They are impenetrable to us. They are completely shrouded in mystery. But one thing God will never do in any of our lives is to leave us in that circumstance and in that mystery without a promise without a promise from his word that speaks to us as a child of God in the middle of such a season. And God's promises are the surest thing in the whole world that a person can trust in. As Jesus declared, heaven and earth will pass away, and they will, but my word will never pass away. And here's a wonderful promise to claim. It's a treasured promise. It's a famous and favorite promise of God's people, and there's a reason for it. Romans 8:28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. I've never known him to violate that promise. And I have a sneaking suspicion that one day when we all stand on that glassy sea and we look back at mountains of mystery now made perhaps absolutely clear to us, that we will be able to look back and say he worked it all together for good. The mystery is God's. The promise is yours. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Life is no easier for you than it is for the Christian. Well, in some respects it is concerning spiritual warfare, but it's still a hard place to be. You may look at it and say, listen, I have no interest in becoming a Christian after that sermon. Are you kidding me? You're not in church unless you're facing trouble. And it may not be outward. It may be inward. It may be in your mind. It may be in your heart. It may be the emptiness and loneliness of life apart from God. You know why you're here. But hard times come for everyone in life. And the God who loves you, the God who made you, does not want you to face not another hour or another day of your life or another trial or another difficulty independent of him. He knows you need him and a relationship with him. 
for what you're facing in life and what you will one day face in life. And Jesus declares to you, for God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that's Jesus, that whosoever, that's you again, would believe in Jesus that he should not perish but have everlasting life. That's God's offer to you today to begin the relationship with him that you've been created for and that you so desperately need and that you are just coming to realize how desperately you need. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service and they would love to answer your questions and to pray with you to enter into the relationship that you have been created for and without which nothing else in life will make sense. Let's pray together now. But I just want in the privacy of this sanctuary and in the privacy of our own human heart and in the presence of our great God to ask you this morning are you in the place that John the Baptist was in? Are you in the middle of a great crisis and a great shaking concerning your faith? The circumstances new and powerful or the circumstance has been long and deep but whatever the circumstance it's brought you to a place where you understand John on a massive level this morning and if that's where you are in life today and the trial that you're in I would just ask you to raise your hand where you're seated so I can know who I'm about to pray for just raise your hand up high so I can see that in the room just raise it nice and high if that's where you are 